Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm very excited about our two fantastic guests tonight. And this is a very, very important topic that we're going to be uh, dissecting tonight. Absolutely. You know something? I can't believe we get such accomplished uh, guests on our show. I think it, I really blame it on our sex appeal. You know, <laughs> I think that has so much to do with it. We, and on the, in the left screen is um, Leslie Morgan Steiner, who is a very accomplished author, speaker, mom. She has a van, you know, she drives a van and she has a, an amazing story to tell. And two, absolutely. Uh, the, the right window is Dr. Debbie Goodman, and she's a professor down, I'm sorry, the, the college of St. Thomas University, Biscayne College. Yes. So that's a mouthful. But Don't she's a professor that. of criminal justice. And, you know, the topic expert tonight, tonight's um, topic is going to be domestic violence. And one of the themes of it is going to be why do they stay? And we're going to talk about that. And we're, we're going to dig into that. But for first we go to that, we're going to go the police off the cuff song and we'll be right back it's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of new york crime fast and hectic they got some stories and some jokes even an interview with the most powerful folks off the cuff off the cuff, one episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Folks, I'd like to introduce our guest again. Leslie Morgan Steiner is an author, a consultant, and thought leader on women's leadership, work-life balance, inspirational parenting, overcoming adversity, and surviving violence against women. We'd love to welcome you to the show tonight, Leslie. It's so great to have you here. But before we welcome both of you, I want to introduce Dr. Debbie, who uh, has a pretty equivalent resume like you do. Dr. Debbie Goodman is a criminologist, a published author, educated and a former TV show host. Prior to teaching in the bachelorate criminal justice degree program at STU's Biscayne College, Dr. Goodman served as chairperson of the Miami-Dade College School of Justice. I'm not going to go through, I'd have to, I'd have to spend half the show reading their full resume. So I told them to just get a few sentences. Perfect. Leslie, you have an amazing story and uh, you did it on a TED talk and you are a, a victim in your past of domestic violence. And uh, we'd like to hear a little bit about, and uh, you know, I hate to say the highlights, but we don't have time to hear the entire story. But it's an amazing story, an amazing story that you know when they talk about the when you come back from something, when you get knocked on your ass, what shows you who you are is getting back up, and you definitely got back up, and that's uh, a testament to how strong you are. Well, I'd be happy to give you the the highlights of the story, the the quick version. Um, 
the whole story is in my book, Crazy Love, and um, somewhat in my TED Talk about why victims stay. But what happened to me is that I grew up in a home with no violence, uh, and I went to Harvard College. And when I graduated, I moved to New York City. I um, was working at Seventeen Magazine, and I met and fell in love with an amazing guy. And he also had just graduated from an Ivy League school, and he was working at a really impressive investment bank. And I had never really been in love, and I, I fell very hard in love with him. And it turned out that he had been terribly physically abused as a little boy. And he was really adamant that abuse was wrong and that he would never hurt a woman. And I was naive, and I believed him. And I married him and he started beating me right at the time of our wedding. And the violence escalated and escalated and escalated. And overnight I went from being, you know, a Harvard graduate with a great shiny job at 17 Magazine, living in New York City to completely isolated with a man who I thought was my soulmate, who had three guns and was beating me and holding loaded guns to my head on a regular basis. And I didn't, know what had happened. It happened so fast and I didn't know how to get out. And I, for a lot of reasons, I didn't tell anybody. And then when I finally was able to leave after years of beating, the people who helped me the most were the police. Because as you know, you all know more about domestic violence than anybody except a victim. And in some ways, you know even more than victims because you see such a range of victims and you see us again and again and again in our worst circumstances. And I'm, I'm always, I've always been grateful to the officers who helped me, even though they saved my life and I don't even know their name. And then I rebuilt my life. I, it's a whole story in and of itself of how I left and how I stayed left and how I got out of debt and um, recovered physically and psychologically. And I went on to remarry and have three wonderful kids and, um, Fast forward to me now uh, in my late 50s with grown children, very happy life. And I think if you met me, you would never know that I was an abuse victim, which is we're all hiding in plain sight uh, all the time. For sure. Dr. Debbie, I wanted to just run this by you because we see this all the time in police work is that the abused becomes the abuser. You want to comment on that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, first, if you will, allow me to you know, thank both of you. Uh, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, and of course, Leslie for, for the composure and bravery to share this type of story. You're, you're exactly on point when we know statistically that those who are abused will become the abusers. And why is that? We can certainly point to the sociological, psychological impact of what's happened to them. This is what they know. This is what they've seen. This is what they've experienced. And unfortunately, now this becomes the platform by which they operate in terms of their interpersonal behavior. And I'm sure we'll get into it. But again, we're talking about behaviors that may very well start with the verbal abuse, right? The, the criticisms, the complaints, nothing is ever right, nothing is ever good enough, um, passive aggressive types of behavior. Just so, again, we're reminding our, our viewers, our audience, our listeners of how these instances may uh, begin. And then, of course, the, the onset of the, the physical, which uh, Leslie is, is sharing, and that, too, becomes the question of how and why 
is somebody that we love in a relationship with, committed to, loyal to, now demonstrating such terrible acts of violence. So when you point to uh, Sergeant Bill, you know, the abuse becomes the abuser. That is true. That tends to be the typology of where we can start as a talking point. You know, so much has changed in um, the world of domestic violence, even in the way we police it. And when I came on a job in 1985, uh, it started changing to where it was almost a must-arrest policy for almost everything. And I, I remember the, um, you know, the, I used to have it memorized what fit the criteria of to arrest someone for domestic violence, harassment, assault, disorderly conduct, you know, menacing, all of those things. And then when I made sergeant, it was no joke because it was like the buck stopped with me. If I walked away and then the husband killed the wife or hospitalized her, it was my fault. Even though you can't really predict what's going to happen when you leave, there's certain indicators. So that's why I think the state went to the almost uh, zero tolerance policy in regards to domestic violence. Phil, you have any comment on that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, your early time on the job because my first experience with domestic violence, I came on the NYPD in 1982. Uh, and in 1983, um, my real first, uh, you know, uh, meeting a domestic violence victim, uh, it was just an ordinary call an early evening. Uh, you know, we got a call that there was a fight inside of our apartment. And once we got in, um, it was a family having dinner. They were an African-American family. And I'll never forget the, the woman had served hamburgers and there were three children in the home and the husband for whatever reason took the ketchup bottle and broke it on her head she had a slight laceration uh i immediately was enraged and wanted to arrest uh the, the husband she begged us not to um uh the FTO that I was with because I was still in training uh, said, listen, if you want to do this, this is going to turn into a big Megillah, meaning that the children would have to be placed into uh, social services and, and to arrest the husband. And she was uh, a non-cooperative compl uh, complainant. So at that time in 1983, that was uh, we wound up making a police report and referred it to court. Uh, I think everything changed around uh, 93 around OJ Simpson uh, case, which was Nicole Brown Simpson mm -hmm. and um, the other person that was killed with her. I can't think of his name. Uh, oh, Ronald Goldman. Ronald Goldman yeah. So after that is when we were hit with the must arrest uh, domestic violence uh, situation. And I think it was a great thing that happened. Unfortunately, two people lost their lives. But had that uh, policy been in effect, uh, that person probably would have been arrested in 1983. I mean, I was kind of talked out of it by the FTO because that was the standard at that time. Um, and, you know, like I said, the woman was uh, not going to cooperate with her. She just begged. She wanted to, you know, just keep her, her family intact. So uh, I think it's a good thing by shining the spotlight on it between that uh, that case with Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson and uh, Leslie Morgan Steiner. I, I, I just have to applaud you. You're a, you're a survivor. I read your, your uh, Ted conversation and uh, it's just really really uh, it's very I don't know how to put it any way it's a, it's an emotional thing to read about that and to think that a person can go through that and Bill and I before we went on earlier today we talked about the Stockholm syndrome and I said Bill it's kind of like the Stockholm syndrome is built into the relationship because it doesn't start out with violence it starts out with love and respect for one another and then it morphs into that so again all of those components and, and that's why I guess it's really not 
that much of a big question as to why the person doesn't leave. There's that, I guess that Stockholm syndrome and uh, takes a lot of guts. And, and when I read the statistics about how uh, most of the people that are, are killed in these type of situations, it happens after the person leaves. So uh, again, I, I applaud you, Leslie Morgan Steiner. It's a uh, tremendous story and I'm glad that you're, uh, you're doing well today. Thank you. Leslie, let me ask you something. What gave you, and I knew obviously you couldn't stay in this situation. When I read uh, the TED Talk, I was horrified, and I've seen unbelievable violence in my life. And I was just horrified that a woman as beautiful as you, and not that beauty has anything to do with it, but just the fact that you're so accomplished, you're so smart, and you know, and not also to say if someone was poor and not smart, I wouldn't feel the same way. But it's just sort of in this situation that's almost uh, impossible to get out of, unscathed. And what gave you the strength to get out of this? You know, I, I loved him so much and I felt so sorry for him. He had been so abused as a child and I didn't want to abandon him the way so many other women had abandoned him. And I never saw myself as a battered woman, even when he was threatening to kill me and holding loaded guns to my head. I saw myself as a strong, smart, independent woman, which I was, in love with a very troubled man. And I was going to use all of my power to help him and to save him. And I tried so hard. But what made me leave was a couple of things. One is that I started to to realize, to really know that I was losing myself. I was disappearing before my very eyes. I was becoming weak. I was be losing all of my self-esteem. I also had two very kind friends who told me that they saw that I was too. And I confided in them what was going on. They were the only two people who knew. And then what happened was there was one final beating where he barricaded me in our bedroom and he beat me and strangled me into unconsciousness, which he did all the time. The, the first beating, he strangled me, which, as you two know, is a really a, that and the possession of guns is amps up the lethality risk to a very dangerous situation. And he had a black belt in karate and a black sash in kung fu. And he just he beat me over and over again. And I, I knew he was going to kill me mm -hmm. and I felt it. And it didn't matter anymore how much I loved him because something in me cared about myself more. And I was also very lucky that a neighbor intervened. I don't know who the neighbor was, I never found out, but somebody pounded on our door and I'll never forget his voice. He said, stop it, stop it. Can't you tell that if you keep going, you're gonna kill her? And so Connor stopped and ended up leaving the apartment that night. and. As soon as he left, I did the thing that I had never done before, which is that I picked up the phone and I called the police. And the police were there right away. And they were so matter of fact. They didn't feel sorry for me and they weren't angry at me. They just were really, they gave me some facts and they said, we see this all the time. And if you let him back, he is going to kill you and we're gonna find you dead on your own living room floor. And there's something really powerful with having two authority figures say that. And I, I remember feeling that night, you know, I was very raw and very open. 
um, I could feel that those two men cared about me in a way that my own husband didn't and couldn't. And it just really struck me. And I promised myself I was going to do everything that they told me to do. And I did. And it wasn't easy to leave him. He begged and begged to come back, which he had done many times. It's one reason why we don't leave is that they beg us and they're very convincing that they love only but us. Leslie, can I, can I interrupt yeah. you for one second? Yes. I just want to say like, when you think about that, like the begging to come back and the love, and I love you so much is, and then you think of the lunacy of someone strangling you and beating you and putting a gun to your head. On one side is this saying, wait a minute, this is, this is not acceptable. It's crazy. And the other side is this person saying, oh, I love you. Love and what this, it doesn't, it doesn't mix. You know what I mean? I know, but see, this is the thing. I, I I'm not trying to put you down at all. No, no, I'm just no, trying I, to point I, this out. I, I agree with you. But I think it's really important to put yourself inside the victim's head. I think it's the only way of understanding why we stay is that, you know, I said I felt sorry for him. And perpetrators tend to pick women with really big hearts. And I felt so sorry for that boy who he'd been. And I knew he didn't mean to hurt me. I knew it was like the rage from what had happened to him. He had been horrifically abused as a child. That that rage was just coming out. That by loving him, I triggered it. And I knew he needed me and that he, he truly loved me. And for a long time, I just thought I could take it and that I should take it because not because I deserved it, but because that's what our society says to women is that even though men are supposed to be so strong, every little girl and every woman really understands from an early age that women are the strong ones and that we're the ones who are expected to care for and nurture men and cover up for them and be their therapists and their lovers and their cheerleaders. And that's what I thought I was supposed to do for him. And it took a, it took a long time after the relationship ended before I was able to understand that I was actually the last person on earth who could help him because I was the trigger just by loving him. I, I triggered all of his rage and memories of the, the violence. So I think it seems crazy from the outside, um, especially if you're going to the same victim's home again and again and again. But I have to say that the question is not why did I stay? The question really is why did he beat me? Why did he beat the one person on earth who wanted to help him more than anybody? And why did we all let him? <coughs> in some ways, we all collude in this. We turned a blind eye. We, we glorify men who use violence to protect women. And, you know, we saw a great example of it at the Oscars last night that Will Smith said, I'm I'm punching Chris Rock um, because of love and because I love my wife. And I'm not inside Will Smith's head and I don't know what it's like to be a black man in America, but love and violence do not go together ever. And love is never a justification of violence. But you see, we get it all the time. We get it with um, Chris Brown and Rihanna. We, you know, with Gabby Petito, she got it. We all get those messages that if somebody, if a man really loves you, mm, you know, he might lose his temper sometimes and we should forgive it and move on. He's never really going to hurt us. And it isn't until they really hurt us that the luckiest ones of us leave. Some of us are so sick at that point and so entrapped. It's like being in a two-person cult um, mm -hmm. that you can't leave. But I was lucky that I really got out like by the skin of my teeth with a lot of help, including from those officers. That's great. Dr. Debbie, I wanted to ask you a, a question that sure. has always sort of baffled me. And that's why 
say, and I'm not saying Leslie did this, but why does some battered women get into another relationship with the same exact type of guy that they got in trouble with in the first relationship? Right. Very intriguing. And it's very similar to your, your first question about how the abuse becomes the abuser. How is it that the alcoholic or somebody who's grown up in a family of alcoholism and has seen the depths of despair and demise will turn to alcohol. And so it's part of our human nature, right? Meaning we ourselves are, are creatures of routine and comfort and familiarity. And yes, on its surface, it doesn't make sense, but all of Leslie's points are just spot on and, and perfectly aligned. And it is the perfect storm because there's been this, this level and layers of, of the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, at times sexual abuse as well. And yet that's the one side of the coin. Now, the other side of the coin is the love, is the savior mentality. Let me help. Let me nurture. I love this person some way, somehow, deep down, he loves me. But it's not uncommon, as we know, in our field of criminal justice, that the um, you know the victim who then becomes a survivor may uh, again be attracted to the first types of qualities and characteristics that draw the person in, right? The charm, the intellect, the protection, uh, the kindness, the generosity, only to be disguised and and the true colors get revealed. But but these talking points are so important, and I'm also hoping as a criminologist with, with the four of us here, that, that there's also a call to action that clearly our, our viewers today, our listeners, there's, there's a level of interest to this as well as intrigue. However, we may be speaking directly to somebody who is in the throes of this, literally as we speak. And, and like Leslie, Leslie should be viewed clearly as, as the hero and with the S, the Shiro. That, that she was able to do it. And for anybody going through this or who knows somebody going through, we've got to find a way, dig deep to get help. And the help is certainly coming to the realization first that one is in the experience because we know, um, you know, with forensic psychology and just victimology, we, we tend to do this type of rationalization theory of, well, but he's really just going through the tough time and he just lost his job and he's having financial issues. And yes, there's a mental health decline. And now he's self-medicating with the alcohol and the prescription meds. Well, guess what? That's the perfect storm. All of that becomes the perfect storm to be let out and targeted and projected toward toward the victim, who thankfully people like Leslie can become the survivors. You know, and, Debbie, and Sergeant I always Cannon, to... you know what I would say too, is that I actually think that that is a myth, that people who have been victims, that their subsequent relationships on a regular basis are abusive as well, because I'd have never seen data to, to uh, back that up. And the victims that I know, they, it's the last thing we want is to have this happen twice. And I think that in a way, and I'm not saying that you're doing this on purpose, but I think in a way it's a subtle way of blaming victims, um, saying that we choose these people again and again because we don't choose them. They choose us. They, this is a predator and prey situation. And people who are inherently really kind and generous-spirited uh, attract um, 
a predator like that. And it's a, if you're somebody who is abusive, of course you're going to go after somebody who has already shown that she has taken abuse. And um, it just adds the, to the complexity of it. But I don't think that there's anything in victims that want it to happen once or twice or multiple times. And a lot of victims grow up in abusive homes, so they see it at home and they think it's normal. But a lot of people like me grow up in homes without any violence. And there's nothing in our life that said, that makes us more likely to have it. Abuse can happen to anybody. And it can happen to You know, Leslie, I'm not it. saying that because I, I've seen it in my police career. I've seen it, you know, people that have been abused go out, start going out with the same or, or hook up with the same type of person. And I don't know... I'm not referring to statistics. I'm saying in my police career, I've seen this happen, you know, and one of the other things was, you know, it's also common when the, you can ask any cop, they go to active domestic violence situations where it's really violent and they go and grab the husband and the wife jumps on their back and starts be, <laughs> starts attacking them, you know, and so it's like, make that point we find it almost funny. It's like, wait, you called us to help you and now you're attacking us. That, that's we the see ourselves as the protector. It's a strange thing about the psychology of it. Um, Janae Rice, who was who eventually married uh, Ray Rice, the mm -hmm. NFL player, oh, the yeah. in the elevator. She said on national television, she said, no, I'm Ray's protector. You know, it's a ridiculous statement that she's the protector of a football player. But you know, Leslie, I just want to make a quick comment on that. I taught at a college that was 99% black and Hispanic. And when that incident happened, I spoke about it in class. And a lot of the kids thought it was perfectly okay what he did. And hmm. I was like, are you kidding me? He knocked her out. How is that ever okay? And they were like, well, you know, she did this to him. And I was like, Billy, Billy I got to make a point about culture. <laughs> and Leslie, is it okay if I tell a story? And it's a little bit uh, graphic in nature. I, would it upset you? Or is it okay for me to say it? That's fine. Okay. Uh, this is going to the culture of it. Uh, in the late nineties, I worked in Bay Ridge and, um, the domestic violence officer got called out and I went with her uh, on a um, Iranian couple. Uh, the woman had been beaten for two days. I mean, she had uh, marks on her body from her head to the bottom of her feet. That's how badly she was beaten. She was near death. She wound up surviving. Uh, obviously, the rage that we all, the, the whole team that we wanted to capture this guy, and he was Iranian. They were an Iranian couple. And we wound up at his his mother's home. And I, I uh, you know, we don't know where he is. We were met with all of that. We wanted him immediately. We wanted to arrest him. Um, I grabbed the brother. I took him outside and I explained to him, listen, it's better for your brother to turn himself in uh, rather than the police go after him. There could be a tragedy, you know, God forbid, blah, blah, blah. And he said, listen, I'm with you. I'm going to do my best to get him to turn himself in. Now, the, the, the girl was a college student and the husband had this thing in his head that he thought she was cheating. And the brother explained to me, you have to understand in my country, just the mere fact that he thinks she's cheating, what he did to her, he wouldn't get any jail time. I said, well, this is not Iran. This is America. And he's going to go to jail for this. He's going to be arrested. And we convinced him to surrender the brother the next day. But the point is, is that uh, Bill made that point that uh, there's people that think that that's, that kind of violence is okay. And in cultures around the world, it's acceptable and as insane as it sounds to us. And I can't tell you how enraged I would that I didn't go too far into the story, but she survived, but she withstood two days of a brutal, brutal beating. That's all I'm going to say about, it. I don't want to upset anybody, but, uh, and culturally in their country and the family, they were like, you know, 
this is not really a big deal. You know, he thought she was cheating. And even though it wasn't true, and the brother told me, I know she's not cheating. I know she's a good person. He's having delusions about it. That it would still be acceptable in his country. So I think that's one of the other things that we have to point out. And, you know, culturally, we have to, you know, we have the melting pot of, of the world is in the United States and we have to uh, address those things. And, and we have to teach that, no, these things aren't acceptable. It's, it's not acceptable as Leslie made the point that there is no such thing that you, you can, you know, equate violence with, you know, trying to protect your woman as Will Smith allegedly did last night, which the whole thing, I think it was staged to me, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. It may or may not have been staged, but I think you made a great point that even though he was trying to protect his wife's good name or whatever it was that, you know, she had this medical condition, violence is not the answer. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. Uh, if you guys want to support us, you can join our Patreon where we have three different levels. You can become a uh, subscriber. Just go on our YouTube Hit that subscribe button. Give us the thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to become part of our YouTube family, you can go on our YouTube and sign up for five different levels. You can support us on that level. People in the chat with the green font are already members of our uh, our YouTube family. This is an amazing show. And, you know, it's like, you know, you really, your heart breaks for uh, domestic violence people uh, that have experienced because it's, it is such a horrible situation to be in and, and, and to get out of it takes a lot of courage. And, and again, takes a lot of help. And Leslie, I think it was important to note that you, there's at least two, three, probably more than that people in your life that helped you and saved your life. You don't even know their names. It's, and that's not so unusual, right? It, right? it took a whole village really to help me. And I, I had resources, you know, I had a loving family. I didn't have children. I had a culture that said violence against women is wrong. And it was still so hard to leave. I needed those officers. There were subsequent officers who helped me as well. Um, there were advocates in family court. I had a great divorce lawyer. Um, I had people come out of the woodwork, other women who had survived. Um, and I had a locksmith um, who, you know, I called him and asked him to change the locks. And he said, you know, I could be there in five days. And I said, look, I just left a man who was physically abusing me. And he said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Well, that's great. You know, there are a lot of really, really good men out there and good people out there. And, you know, the greatest thing about all of those people was they made me feel like what had happened to me was wrong. And that even if I hadn't known it, my society knew it and that they had my back. And that's a really great feeling to have. And I think that a lot of victims don't have that because the, their cultural messages that prevent them from getting it. And also, you know, it takes us victims so long to leave. It takes the average victim seven attempts at leaving before he or she actually leaves. And so people get really frustrated with us. And instead of getting mad at the perpetrators and understanding the psychological trap that we're in, they get angry at us. And it's a natural response, but it, it makes it more complicated for everybody. Mm -hmm. Guys, I'm going to go a little bit to a, a file tape of the Gabby Petito, the incident when the Moab police stopped them in Utah in that van. And the Moab police have been highly criticized for this incident. And Phil and I and other police NYPD guys, we commented on this and we thought that they did a pretty decent job. But after the fact, there was a lot of criticism of them. And I'm just going to play a little bit of this. And probably everyone that's seen this show has seen this, this video a million times, but I'm going to play it and you can you guys can comment on it. Thank <laughs> you. 
I'm gonna go ahead and close your door. So two two nine. I had the female that was on the passenger mm-hmm. seat separated from the male. Keys are on the hood. You want to tell me that's one? Yeah, I don't know. It's just some days I have really bad OCD, and okay. I just I was just cleaning and cleaning up back of the before, and I was apologizing to him and saying, "I'm sorry that I'm so mean." Like sometimes I have OCD, and sometimes I can get really frustrated. I'm not like mean towards him. I just like. I guess my vibe is like I really am like in a bad mood. And I was just saying, I'm sorry if I'm in a bad mood. I've just been really stressed. I had so much work I was doing on my computer this morning. What do you do for a living? Um, well, I, I hate sport organic juice bar, but I just hit my job. Okay. I was a nutritionist. That's oh, what, okay. That's my that's job. Cool. And I just um, hit my job to travel across the country. And I'm trying to start a blog. Okay. Have a lot of stuff. So I've been building my website. So I've been really stressed, and he doesn't really believe that I could do any of it. So that's kind of been like a, I don't know. He's like, down there. I don't know. We've just been fighting all morning, and and he wouldn't let me in the car before. And then Why I, wouldn't he let you in the car? Because you have OCD. Told me I need to calm down. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm. I'm calm all the time, and he really stresses me out, and I just. Dr. Debbie, obvious signs of potential uh, domestic violence? Yes, and again, uh, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, Leslie, this is just heartbreaking. Um, This story, this tragedy uh, really captured the hearts and minds of America. Uh, Why every day we're hearing about, thinking about this young couple who on their surface looked to have it all when we would see the pictures of them smiling and the videos on their adventurous journey together. And here they are, past tense now, were uh, engaged and, and being adventurous and being industrious and both were bright and certainly attractive. And so now to to see how how Gabby you know, her condition, her, her emotions, her psychology is really just heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, you know, again, to remind our, our viewers and many of whom, of course, also followed the case from beginning till end. Um, we know she died by strangulation. We know that he self-inflicted with a gunshot wound. And in between the, the stress, the struggle, the strain of this young couple, um, is just at the height of, you know, captured our attention daily. So the question here, of course, and I know what, what we're thinking and asking among the four of us and our viewers and listeners, you know, should law enforcement, uh, should they have, could they have taken a different approach in that one moment? Well, we're playing next day quarterback here. You know, of course, they want to handle every circumstance to the best of their ability with the facts that they're provided, nobody was arrested. We understand that psychology and certainly Detective Phil and Sergeant Bill, you know better than anybody to arrest a young couple is going to be also very traumatic. But should the officers on this one have made an arrest? As we know too, even some of the backstory that um, you know, Detective and Sergeant presented about 
where the victim would plead, don't arrest and jump on the back. Well, now we know we could have co-defendants if and when. We don't know, you know, did party A start it? Did party B? Is there still any level of risk of harm or bodily injury or potential death? So the worst case scenario happened. Um, our hearts break for particularly Gabby. Um, and I think uh, an important question moving forward as well for the platform is what can we do to prevent it? Leslie, did you see that the same way? Did you see obvious signs of domestic violence uh, early on in this cost now? So I and every survivor and advocate I know, as soon as we heard about the Gabby Petito case, long before we watched this video, we knew that she was a domestic violence victim and we knew that she was dead. Um, it was just obvious. There were so many warning signs. And when I watch this video, what I see and what I feel in my heart is a terrified young woman. She's terrified. She's blaming herself, which is a classic red flag. She's also physically a very slight person, which I think matters here. It just accentuates how vulnerable women are. She's also clearly psychologically broken. And, you know, the fact that she calls herself hysterical and says that her boyfriend wanted her to calm down the fact that she's blaming herself, that doesn't excuse any of this. And I think that this case, in addition to just being so heartbreaking, is a really great lesson for all of us. Because I don't know what the police could have done drastically differently. Because we do live in a country where individual freedoms really matter. And they you can't prevent somebody from being in an abusive relationship. It's one of the hardest things in the world is to get somebody out at that stage when they're still in love and where they're really blaming themselves. I think what the police could have done and what have really would have helped a lot is to arrest both of them. And a lot of my fellow advocates and survivors get angry when I say that. But um, I, the reason that I think it would help is that it would be a wake up call to both of them. This is really serious. And it would be a welcome, welcome call to the perpetrator that what he's doing is a crime. And it's a wake up call to the victim that he or she is a victim of a crime. And I didn't know that at the time that I was being abused. And I promise you, my ex-husband did not know that either. And you know, Leslie, that's can the I role just that the police can play. Leslie, I said that there was a lot of information uh, that we didn't know about. And one of them was there was a call saying that he was seen slapping her around on the street outside this restaurant. We didn't know that when we first viewed this video. And then we also saw that she had hit him with the cell phone. He had cuts on the side of his face. So with the, all of that information, I would have absolutely have arrested both of them. Mm -hmm. I would have. Bill, and you, you said that uh, in the beginning. You said the only thing you saw was a possible arrest of both of them. And I think the thing that threw off the officers that did respond there was the fact that uh, she came off as hysterical. He was more calm. Uh, he had the mark on his eye. She admitted that she hit him when the officer asked about why did the car swerve and they hit the curb. Uh, she said, well, I was, I was, uh, I was hitting him. I, you know, I hit him with the phone. So there, there was a lot of different things that, that took place. We had that 911 caller returned to the scene, or we don't know if the 911 caller was ever contacted, but had the 911 caller returned to the scene and said, I saw 
that young man, strike that young woman, I think it would have been a different uh, situation. And again, we don't know that that would have prevented what turned out to be uh, the inevitable death of Gabby Petito because it was like 15 days later that we believe she was killed. That no, was it was August. actually five weeks later. It was five weeks later. Well, I think they uh, that was August the 12th, and the we think the time of death is around the 27th. Uh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. And then her body was found. Yeah. Yeah. You're, it's right. a, it's a, you're thinking of when the body was found. It was recovered. Right? Yes. But, you're but, right. but the, the actual incident was about 15 days. So we don't know if it was the next day. I think, yeah, it would pre, probably be a good, pretty good presumption to say if the, he was arrested or if they were both arrested, she might have been alive. But it was 15 days. And, and I'm not trying to defend, uh, you know, those police officers. I just feel like a lot of time was given to that. Uh, that specific incident was over an hour and they did separate them. However, there, there's got to be something uh, learned or good that's got to come out of this horrible situation. Now, I know that one of the things that was brought up in one of the shows that we did was that if an officer just said to her, uh, away from him, uh, do you feel safe? Are you safe? I think that was a great thing that really didn't come into that. They never really asked her that. And then I learned, uh, you guys probably know it, the international sign is, you know, with the hand, it's a mm -hmm. distress call. So I learned that. So those two things, I think, are maybe two things that could be, you know, implemented for law enforcement going forward. I never knew about the international sign. And that one little thing saying to the person, um, even though, you know, we have you separated and you're saying everything, do you feel safe? And maybe that might have been the, the key that might have made her come forward with, you know, the truth about it's obvious there was domestic violence going on between the two of them, you know. So uh, we can't we can't take it back. I think if those officers had a do over, they would have obviously you know, knowing now. But uh, in New York City, I don't think they would have gotten more than 10 minutes. They spent over an hour with them. So we've said that many times. And, uh, you know, we just got to try and shine the light on it like we're doing tonight. Hopefully we can prevent something horrible like this from ever happening again. Well, hey, yep. that's what it's about is awareness. And I think that you're, what you said is really true that, and anybody can do this, not just a police officer, but you can say to somebody that you're worried about, hey, I'm worried about you. I need to know that you're safe. I care about you. My job is to protect you or I'm your mom and I love you. I'm your friend and I care about you. I'm your co-worker worker and I care about you. Something's off here and I need to know that you're okay, that you're safe. That's what people said to me and it shattered my denial to see how much they cared about me and that I wasn't fooling anyone. I also wanna make another point though about what you said, Detective Grimaldi. You said that she was hysterical and he was calm. And I tell you, this is the big fight in family court when custody of children is disputed in a domestic violence case because we victims, we present as hysterical because we are scared, we're terrified that he's gonna kill us, that he's gonna kill our children, that we're gonna lose and that the judges and the police and everybody else, they're gonna believe him because he's charming and we're hysterical. And I think it should be a warning sign for anybody adjudicating a domestic violence case that if one person is preternaturally calm and the other is incredibly hysterical, that that is a huge red flag. If they really, if it really is a mutual fight, they're gonna be more the same. And Abusers are incredibly charming and calm and under pressure. And we victims, we are not because we're, we're terrified. We know we're Gabby Petito being hysterical like that. That was her own way of crying for help and saying, I'm yes. not safe. Please help me. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the officers didn't know enough about the warning signs about abuse to to see that for what it was. And one of the main 
causes that I'm involved with is a group called the Crimes Against Women. Um, it's based in Dallas, Texas, and there's a big conference every year that's three years. And all it is is this sort of education and awareness of what to look for in victims of abuse, sex trafficking, um, sexual assault, and how all of us as a society can come together to protect victims and also to get perpetrators the help that they need. Because a lot of perpetrators, they don't necessarily want to be doing this. And in their own way, they need help too. Mm -hmm. Guys, uh, Dr. Debbie, I want to give you a chance to respond, but we've got to go to a quick commercial break. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? That actually is uh, something that we should go over tonight, victim's advocate. Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. You could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Secret to uh, quickly hiring the best police officers before your competition does. With an extremely limited job candidate pool, law enforcement agencies have to quickly identify and hire qualified police officers before another agency does. That's why nearly 70 U.S. agencies have updated their hiring process to include iDetect, a fast, affordable, non-invasive, unbiased, and automated lie detector. It accurately identifies lies by watching the eyes. iDetect also helps solve crimes. Convera CEO Todd Mickelson shared stories about how iDetect is changing the way the world detects deception. Remember, the eyes don't lie. Converis.com, 1-801-331-8840, or you can email them at info at Converis.com. Dr. Debbie, I mean, there was a lot said by uh, Leslie uh, in regards to all that comments? Yes, please. And, and thank you again for all the uh, points shared. So I'd like to comment on the piece of education and training. We know and understand uh, law enforcement training at the basic training level, at the in-service training level. So I would like to submit a real careful and, and scrutinous way of evaluating what type of training is happening literally as we speak can we go to our posts, our police officer, officer standards and training commissions here in Florida? We have what's called Criminal Justice Standards and Training Commission. And these are the governing bodies that decide how many hours of training and what exactly that training will be. So I would like to submit we do need more and active and uh, practitioner-based training on the domestic violence interactions. We all know about scenario-based training, and maybe, again, one of the takeaways is to increase and, and fuse more uh, direct learning into the curricula. I'll tell you, and, and we discussed it a little bit, uh, the four of us at the onset of the show, but at uh, the university where I'm a professor, St. Thomas University in Florida, we have a standalone course called Women in Justice, and we dedicate a lot of time to these types of um, topics and issues. And, and what happens too is when our 
our lady uh, student colleagues feel comfortable and they share with one another that yes, they too have had some level of experience, whether it was a direct family member whom they witnessed in a, in a victimization capacity or they themselves who were involved in an intimate relationship. So I've already invited Leslie to, uh, to speak with us and I'm honored and delighted for when her schedule permits. But again, this is a courageous conversation that needs to be had. And just to, again, um, impart a little bit of data on this, you know, the most current of which is uh, coming from the United Nations, the CDC. We've seen an 8% uptick from the start of the pandemic to the present in these intimate relationships. And whether it's the, the physical, the emotional, the sexual abuse, um, we also know that 20,000 phone calls come in every week to domestic violence abuse hotlines. We know that there's a victimization experience every 20 minutes in our country. And, and remember, too, and particularly Detective Phil and Sergeant Bill and Leslie, you know this, too, that, that domestic violence and these types of um, crimes, and let's not forget that terminology here, these are crimes. Um, however, as a criminologist, I will tell you that these are also what we call the hidden crimes. These crimes do go underreported. So even what we think we know about data, and we know that, you know, the Bureau, of course, our FBI, they put together our uniform crime reports, but based upon crimes that are reported, but even whatever numbers we think we know, it's far greater and far reaching. You know, guys, I just want to go to this famous case in New York City and I know you know about it. I'm going to play a little bit of this file tape. And this, I think, may have changed domestic violence in the entire country as we know it. So I'm going to play a little bit of this. Where a woman takes a stand to talk about the abuse she has endured in a high-profile case. So police in Greenwich Village get a call around November 1st of 1987 and respond to this apartment in a landmark building and inside discover a house of horrors. There's a child lying on the bathroom floor, a little girl, six years old, barely breathing, Lisa Steinberg. I, we have been informed by officials at St. Vincent Hospital that the child has been declared legally dead. It became front page headlines. People were like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? And all the details started emerging of what was going on in that household. The 21 bruises that covered the six-year-old child known as Lisa Steinberg spoke volumes about the reach of domestic violence into any household, even a Greenwich Village brownstone where Mark Twain once lived on West 10th Street. And people are shocked that this girl living in this so-called affluent household is dead with bruises all over her body. Lisa's adoptive parents, Joseph Steinberg and Hedda Nussbaum, who were charged with beating her, had been reported for child abuse as far back as 1983 and 1984. The two of them were engaged in drugs that night, and they failed to call an ambulance. Had they called the ambulance, Lisa might have survived. Joel Steinberg is being held in prison. Hedda Nussbaum was a patient in a mental hospital. So they get arrested, but the prosecution quickly realizes in order to make a case, they need testimony from someone who was inside that apartment. The prosecution immediately zeroed in on the role of Hedda Nussbaum, Steinberg's lover and Lisa's mother figure. Hedda became the one person who could testify what went on in the house that night. What happened was the prosecution became convinced that she was a victim. 
Nussbaum is now ready to take the stand against Steinberg. The real culprit there was clearly Joel Steinberg. The evidence will show that he beat this Nussbaum until he finally broke in her. She sort of epitomized someone who was very messed up. She had two black eyes, a split lip, and bruises all over. Nine broken ribs, a fractured jaw, beaten about the face and the legs. Her nose was so broken and so disfigured that it had to be reconstructed with part of her ear. Think about the horrendous condition she's in and has been in for such a long period of time. And you see pictures of her before she met Joel Steinberg and she's an attractive, normal looking person. The contrast between that and seeing her when she first appeared on the witness stand is horrifying, really. In a sense, the Steinberg trial is a freak show. And what you get is a front row seat into the dark side of human behavior. And suddenly people had a face that they were looking at of someone who had experienced domestic violence. Her attorney claims she was beaten so badly that she could not possibly come to the aid of little Lisa for she feared for her own life. The prosecution would argue that Hedda was a battered woman and could not make rational decisions. But there were a lot of people bothered by the fact that once Lisa was very badly injured and laying on a cold bathroom floor, that 911 was not called. I think she's disgusting. I have no sympathy for the woman. Yes, there were a lot of people who said she is to blame too. She was complicit. She didn't do enough. All of the jurors felt that Hedda Nussbaum failed in her role as parent, and many simply did not believe her version of what happened. From the very beginning, it was clear the jury would not convict Joel Steinberg of murder. Joel Steinberg was not convicted of murder. He was convicted of manslaughter in the first degree. And I believe that's because it was a compromised verdict that the jury members had some problem with Hedda Nussbaum not having any criminal liability. Ms. Nussbaum, are you falsifying reality to spare yourself of complicity in the death of Lisa Steinberg. Why didn't she, you know, uh, call the police? Well, you guys can see, I, I mean, we get the gist of that. Uh, she was a horribly beaten down woman, not just beaten down physically, but beaten down emotionally. She had no spirit left in her body. I remember when this happened in 1987, I had been on the job for like two years. I came on in 85 and I back then adamantly felt, oh, she should be charged too. She should really be charged. I don't feel that way anymore. I really could see. And we spoke, we spoke before about Stockholm syndrome. And um, if this woman didn't have that and uh, I don't know who does. And, and as I spoke before about how her whole, her whole spirit was beaten down. I don't think she could think rationally because she was trying to protect herself from getting another beating. And I mean, the things he did to her, they discuss it later on. It's just, uh, just horrendous. You know, Billy, I'm glad you brought up what your initial uh, feeling was because my initial feeling was the same too. But then when I saw, I mean, nine broken ribs, bruises all over her body. I mean, her face is distorted. Uh, so I, I do feel that you know, they made the right decision with not charging her and going after Joel Steinberg. He was uh, really, really uh, violent. Uh, he, he used crack cocaine in between uh, beatings. Uh, on the night that uh, little Lisa was uh, beaten to submission before they called the ambulance, he, he 
went out and he came home and he, and he smoked more crack cocaine before they even called the ambulance when she was unconscious. So, uh, you know, listen, our initial instincts and our initial reaction is how could someone be in that home? And I, I read in a little bit of research that I did that the medical uh, examiner felt that had uh, they called the police and called 911 or the ambulance right away that she probably would have survived and recovered from her injuries. So again, that enrages you. That makes you think, you know, this little, little, beautiful girl could have been alive. And when you see her body, the way it was so damaged, uh, you know, you can get to that conclusion, but I think there's an argument on both sides of it and uh, looking at it today and understanding, you know, what these people went through. Uh, I think the right decision was made, but initially I would have had that to say uh, that same feeling myself, Bill, that I would wanted her, you know, to be charged as well. But uh, it seems that, uh, you know, uh, going through it, that, that they made the right decision. Leslie, I can see the thoughts pouring out of your head without it coming out of your mouth. <laughs> There's just so much here. And I have such incredible sadness for this case. And, you know, it's interesting that we're all on the show together because we all started out in kind of at the same time in the same place. I mean, I moved to New York in 1987, right when this case was unfolding. And it changed me forever. And... I think one of the things looking back is that the, you know, the biggest misconception about abuse is that it's never going to happen to us. And I remember thinking I would never be like head in this bomb. I would never not protect my children. I would never have a, let a man tell me I had to sleep on the floor the way he made her. And then a year later I was in an abusive relationship. So it just really could happen to anyone. You don't, you don't, you never see it coming. And now, looking back, one of the really, you know, now that I've had decades of experience in this field, it's very complicated the way we judge women in abusive relationships who are not protecting their children. And there are times where women lose custody of their children for not protecting them, um, even though they're just trying to protect themselves and keep the family together, and where the, uh, the perpetrator, like Joel Steinberg, is not held fully responsible. I mean, it's amazing to me that he was not charged with murder. Um, that anything that it had a, did or didn't have to do with it is even relevant here is incredible to me. Um, and I also just want to point out that, you know, all of the sympathy that we have for Lisa, that's the what I felt for my ex-husband who was beated, beaten on a routine basis starting when he was four. You know, his nose broken, his arm broken, his ribs, his mother was beaten in front of him. And I think we've got to look at abuse much more kind of holistically and understand that it infects, it affects entire families. This is not a women's issue. This is a human being issue. And that all of us have a responsibility to educate ourselves about the complexity of abuse and know what it really looks like. So, because there had to be neighbors and teachers and people on their block who knew exactly what was happening. And we've got to empower bystanders so that they know what to do. Um, and we have to empower police and the judicial system to do something. I witnessed child abuse on an airplane this last summer, and I had to fight so hard to even get the police to file a report. And I ended up talking to the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. And there was an FBI agent that said to me, hey, lady, you know, 30 minutes of bad behavior on an airplane doesn't constitute child abuse. You know, we still have a very long way to go here. Well, that's why, you know, there's mandatory reporters, um, one of the things we always learn as uh, police officers is that the buck stops with the police. 
And we're almost the only agency that is ever held accountable to the highest level. And even the officers that had responded to this scene, I think in, there was several visits to this house. And there were questions as to why didn't you go right into that house? Well, he came to the door and he is an attorney. He said, you can't come into my house. They didn't have like reasonable suspicion that there was child abuse going on or else, I mean, I would just bust through the door, but they were criticized for it. And the police department is always, believe me, I don't care what police department it is. They wanted to hang those Moab cops uh, with the Gabby Petito stop. And, uh, you know, from a police perspective, from the law perspective, knowing what they know, knew at the time, I think they did a pretty good job. They spent an hour and 15 minutes on that job. But yet they want them retrained. Some people wanted them fired. Some people wanted them to lose vacation days. They I were mean, on probation, I believe. Bill. Yeah, they were. So I know that in the big picture, Leslie, you can you can look at it like, well, they deserve that because they may have uh, maybe not thinking that I'm interpreting. I, I, I'm not thinking that. I actually no, think said that, that earlier. We love to blame people in our society. Yeah. We absolutely love to, and the police unfortunately have become an easy target, just as you know, the targets move, but we like to blame people. And this is, this is an everybody issue. I understand that police can only do so much. It's really true. Everybody has to care about this and everybody has to want say that it's wrong and want to stop it or it's never going to end. You know, we always question what did the um, Chris and Roberta Petito know? They lived there for two years. They didn't see this. You know laundry, what I mean? Uh, laundry, Dr. Debbie, you must Christian, have thought Christian this. Yeah, right. I think uh, Detective Phil, you know, we're talking about, is it the, we don't see anything, we don't hear anything, we don't say anything. And, and what a disgrace and what a disservice to allow any type of wrongdoing at any level to go um, unreported. But clearly, I think um, the family knew and knew a lot. And I imagine very clearly uh, Brian Laundry coming home to tell his parents and they did not do the right thing and report. We know the sister had information and made a plea for him to come forward. So uh, again, the takeaway has to be that first there has to be an understanding, a recognition if and when somebody himself or herself uh, however, the statistics are one in four women we know and uh, one in nine men somewhere in their lifetime will be experiencing some level of physical, uh, verbal, emotional, sexual abuse by the intimate. Um, see something, say something. As Leslie mentioned, the support systems are there in place. We got to find a way and dig deep to uh, change the dynamic from victim to victor. One hundred percent, Phil. You had something to say before this? No, I was just trying to correct. You said Petito instead of laundry. You said uh, Chris. Oh, I'm and, sorry. Yeah, I yeah, meant Chris and Roberta Laundry. Yeah, no, that's it. That, yeah, right. That it was laundry. Okay. It's post-traumatic stress. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what, Billy? One of the quick points that I wanted to make. Uh, I talked about that domestic violence case that I had in '83. Uh, this Joel Steinberg case, '87. Police went there several times, and they were, uh, you know, they were they were admonished for it, or there, there was a call for their heads, or whatever it was. But it was really acceptable to refer things like that to court, to take a police report. And again, you said Joel Steinberg, he was an attorney. He may have said to the police, "You're not coming to my house. You don't have a warrant." He may have stopped them. And in that day and age, that was acceptable, uh, you know, that they, they didn't go any further. But I think that because there's 
so many of these cases and the spotlight has been shined so much on them that now uh, a lot of policies have changed. And uh, the the one hour and 15 minute stop with Gabby Petito, and it just breaks my heart to watch that video, to see that beautiful young girl that she's no longer with us. And it's because of domestic violence. But when you look at what those offices did, they spent a lot of time. They actually pulled up uh, specific laws on their on their cell phones to look it up, to see if it met the criteria to make an arrest. So they really tried is the point. And I think that had that been 1987, it might have been, uh, you know, you, you guys break it up and get out of here. You know, it might not have even been that. So I think we're making a lot of great points tonight. And I think that we're bringing out a lot of good things. And Dr. Debbie, you, you've made some great points. And Leslie, I think you made a really good one when you, as a victim, stated earlier that there was help. There was that locksmith that dropped what he was doing and came to your aid and the people around you. So if there are victims out there and there probably are people watching this that, that are victims, there is a support system. Just ask for the help. Reach out. There are people that will help you. You have it right from the mouth of Leslie, a victim, that she was met with help. So uh, there are plenty of uh, different avenues that can that can provide help. And then just ordinary people like that locksmith or those two police officers that, that got her out of that horribly violent situation. You know, I just wanted to say the uh, the judge that sat on this case, he was uh, his name was Harold Rothwax. And Harold Rothwax started his career as a legal aid attorney. And then he made judge and he became a really like, I don't know if you can use the term hang him judge, but he was a very tough sentencer. And after when this trial was over and they had the guilty plea, he asked Joel Steinberg if he wanted to speak. And Joel Steinberg got up and spoke and made light of everything he had done. And Harold Rothwax actually started to laugh. And Steinberg was like, well, Judge, why are you laughing? He goes, I find this amazing that you are you are making light of killing a, a little girl and doing the abuse you did to your to your wife, and you're you're and you're making light of it, and, and it was it was an amazing to see because he was this judge, he was restrained by the law because he obviously was only convicted of manslaughter one, and not murder two because uh, of head and Nussbaum, the fact that many people wanted them both to be charged, mm -hmm. but for the district attorney to get a guilty plea on one of them and who was the most culpable of course was Joel they had to have that legal trade off billy you know i read on the internet earlier today looking up on on the uh, lisa steinberg case that he showed no remorse at two parole hearings he uh, a lot of times parole uh, hearings they look for remorse on the person uh, on the defendant that is is trying to get out of jail trying to get paroled and on both of his parole hearings he would not show remorse. He would not admit guilt. And he was only released because he did the maximum amount he could do. The good time law in New York, you need to do two-thirds of your maximum sentence, and you have to be released by the law. So that's how he wound up uh, being released. So, again, uh, narcissistic behavior, you could call it, or whatever it is, uh, he showed no remorse up until the minute he uh, was released from jail. And there was another you know, child ladies in the house, too. There was a, it wasn't just right. There was another, and you know, there something that, uh, follow up on him. He's doing fine. He's married. Yes. He has three kids. He went to college, which is, is unbelievable. That's right. So something saved his life. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you, yeah. if you, people, it should be a reason for people to intervene um, yeah. and to become educated about this and to ask for help. And I, I always tell victims like 
no one can help you if you don't ask for it. You have to break the silence and ask for help and sometimes ask for it again and again and again. But I do believe that our society is fundamentally good and that we believe that violence against women and children and all violence, violence against men too, is wrong. Um, but sometimes you have to really be determined to get the help that you deserve. Absolutely. You know, ladies, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. We're at an hour and seven minutes. I know we could probably stay here and talk for another hour, but <laughs> another several I, I, days, I don't want to take that much time away from you guys. But Dr. Debbie, I want to thank you so much. I, I'm going to give you so, uh, last words. I always give everyone last words. Dr. Debbie? Yes, of course. And well, first and foremost, last words are of, of thanks and appreciation uh, to join this very courageous conversation. So thank you, Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil. Leslie, your story is is amazing. One of one of courage and bravery and, and a real change agent in our in our society. And, and just thank you to all of our amazing law enforcement representatives as well. We have nearly uh, 1 million uh, local, state, and sworn officers and, and very much appreciating the day-to-day -day service, especially in these very unusual times. Uh, uh, Leslie, final words? Just thank you to all three of you for devoting the time to this important subject. And um, I also want to thank everybody who is listening because just by listening, you're taking action to end abuse against people, against women, against children, against everyone. Um, and you're really empowering yourself so that the next time you come across somebody who's being abused, you'll recognize the warning signs and you'll just be a lot more confident about the fact that you can help people who are being abused. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, Detective Phil, final words? Final words. I said at the onset of the show that we had two spectacular guests. These are two heroic women that dedicate their lives to this type of stuff. And uh, Leslie, I th think you brought out some great points about, number one, you got involved on that plane. That was uh, that was really important. People should get involved. If you see something that doesn't seem right to you, uh, myself and my wife uh, got involved. Uh, someone was abusing a dog and we, we got in their face about it. So if you can do that, uh, God forbid it should be a human being that's uh, being abused, but get involved. And uh, the other thing is for victims, there's a lot of help out there. I think we made those points. Uh, and thank you again, ladies, for coming on. I think it's uh, uh, great to have had you on tonight. I think this was a great episode. Yeah, it was. It absolutely was. And again, I want to thank both of you for coming on. If you could hang out for um, like five minutes after we go off and we could just, you know, exchange pleasantries <laughs> and just if you don't have to run. Uh, folks, Sounds thank you so me. much for listening. These were two fantastic guests. I think we all learned a lot today. And uh, we can continue to learn about domestic violence and domestic abuse. Thank you, everyone. everyone. Have, a, Thank you. have a great night, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Everybody. One episode, just ain't enough.